Welcome to the Cybersecurity Vault. I'm your host, Matthew Rosenquist, cybersecurity strategist and CISO at Eclipse. Today, we're going to talk about the importance of the silent war on digital privacy. We'll be talking with Andy Brown, who serves as the CEO of Sand Hill East. And this is a really interesting topic. Just as our world is blossoming and being connected with digital transformation, all of our data is out there and more is being generated every second. There are challenges in being able to use that data for our benefit, but also maintain that privacy and that safety and that security around that data. So today's podcast is created in part by Eclipse, which provides an elegant capability to secure data in transit across insecure networks and between untrusted endpoints and cloud instances. So welcome, Andy. Thank you for coming and talking with us today. Thanks a lot. Pleasure to be here. It's always a pleasure, you know, talking with you and picking your brain because you've got tremendous insights on what some of the leading companies and technologies and people around the world are thinking about and trying to solve problems people are trying to solve. So thank you very much. Just a little bit about your background. Um, why is data and privacy and security, why is all of that a passion of yours? What is triggered in your past to make this important to you? Well, actually, I mean, I think going all the way back to the beginning of my career in the pharmaceutical industry, looking at, you know, protein binding sites and looking at how drugs interact with those protein binding sites. Now, you know, people have their entire human genome completely sequenced and there's no more important piece of uh, private data than your human genome. And, and we'll, you know, we'll get into the discussion about that later. But obviously, having spent 20 years in investment banking, uh, the importance of knowing your client and understanding who it is that you're dealing with and keeping all of their data private both within a company and then within specific roles in the company is a key part of the financial services ecosystem and you know the the financial services ecosystem has kind of acted as an identity provider in their own right uh, to both their clients on the institutional side and just you know people who use banks and so on um, and often people think about you know the bank's role as the owner of that data but in real real life they're actually the custodians of your data and that's a very important distinction so I've really spent my whole career actually working on data um, I always like to think of the terms data processing and information technology. So if you think about it, data processing, information technology, half of it is data and half of it is about the technology in both those two sets of words. Yet many times people focus much more on the technology than the information. I think in the last three years, since digital has become so important, you know, data has finally made it back to the table as an equal partner with tech and has become super important in its own right, rather than talking about the data maybe that's trapped in a platform and then trying to join those pieces of data together. I think data has now become a, uh, an equal citizen, actually, with technology, which is a great, great change. Well, it's definitely a symbiotic relationship, right? I mean, the more data you have or try and gather, the more technology that you need. And the more technology that you now have, the more data that you can gather and potentially use it for good purposes out there, or depending on who you are, maybe for nefarious purposes. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, data can be used for good, it can be used for bad, and that kind of encompasses the overall value of it. And, you know, what are you seeing 
as we move into this new era where we're all connected, whether it's the Fitbit on our wrist tracking our heartbeat or the financial services tracking, you know, what we spend, what we save, what we invest in or healthcare, right? That's, you know, tracking everything. And you had mentioned our genome and, and what we're doing from a behavioral perspective. What are you seeing as the valuation of data? How are organizations, governments, and businesses seeing the evolution of the value of data? Well, I think if you look at the private market uh, investment raises for companies that focus on data, you'll see some absolutely amazing multiples. To take one from last week, Data Miner, D-A-T-A-M-I-N-R, you know, companies like this are attracting massive premiums because the value of the data they have is one thing, but then if you can take the data and turn it into something that's super useful, gives people something they couldn't get any other way. So in data miners case, it's events that are going to happen or events that are happening and you get access to that information sooner than anybody else. That's become super powerful. But companies like Enigma, for example, in FinTech, uh, who's focused on small business data, anybody who's become like an, an expert or a specialist in a certain data vertical uh, has been able to attract high multiples and, and really get plugged into the whole ecosystem as the fuel for digital. So I think, I think that area is super exciting. In financial services alone, there are literally hundreds of data companies in the startup ecosystem focused on one particular or, or maybe two sub-asset classes of data. Noma is a really interesting company that we've worked with really closely in the last year. That's K-N-O-E-M-A. Uh, and they basically source you know, over 55,000 data sets of alternative data. So you can literally go to the website and type in, show me all the uh, electrical vehicle sales in Latin America last year, and it will show you the time series of that over years. And you can literally just drag it straight into a spreadsheet, straight into a Word document, or straight into PowerPoint. So I think the, the, the notion of data being an equal citizen isn't just about the verbiage and the way people talk. It's about the valuations that are ascribed to these kind of companies. I'll draw your attention to another another interesting uh, acquisition in this space, which is the the, the acquisition of Ancestry.com by Blackstone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you know, I mean, many people had done the DNA tests on Ancestry and had opted in to what's called research on Ancestry. And, you know, there was a, a press article about that data potentially having been shared with pharma companies. But I think, you know, when you think about your human genome probably being the most important asset for you to protect, you know, it's very important that even if you did give away access to it, now you start to think more carefully about who's got access to it, what purposes do they want to sell that data for, potentially, um, and how do you want to control access to assets like that? So, I mean, you asked a very broad question in terms of the kind of scope of data, and I gave some practical examples in financial services. You see the same thing in the insurance industry. If you think about the life and annuity industry where you're underwriting someone's life expectancy, the amount of data in that space has also become amazing. I mean, there's even this concept now of real-time life insurance, where if you post on Facebook that you've been skydiving, your premium goes up. And if you post on Facebook that you bought a Peloton and you're using it every day, your premium goes down. So this notion of tying behavior and data, you're going to see show up in all of the generation one and generation two cognition platforms that are working on data and function. That, that's, a, that's a pattern we're seeing in multiple industries. 
Wow, you, you, you've covered so much. Let me unpack a couple of things here. Um, you know, you've talked about the business valuation of those who have the data or can collect tremendous amounts of data. And obviously there's a, there's a huge benefit you know, there. There's also downstream for the end user, the everyday person, you know, me walking down the street, this data collection, this knowing who I am, what I am, how I do things, you know, how does that benefit me as we move forward? I get the insurance companies can better decide how much they're going to bill me, and maybe that helps me because I can get a potentially a, a you know more affordable insurance program if I'm doing good things. But should people be concerned that it's too much data about them and they're not getting any benefit, right? They're just the subject and everybody else is gaining benefit from their data. Is that something that everyday people should be worried about? I think it is. If you look at the European legislation in this space called GDPR, uh, the Europeans have already legislated around this collection of digital exhaust and structural data that you can tie together with digital exhaust and you can tie that together with social network posting and watching and liking and so on to get a really, really deep profile of an individual. Now, the example I used earlier about the banks, I used it on purpose. This notion of who's the custodian of the data and who owns the data, super, super important. If you think about um, COVID testing and you think about the use of a platform like MyChart, right? Everyone thinks MyChart is like a platform that you log on to and then you get a whole bunch of stuff, which is kind of true. But every MyChart instance is separate to the health system that's using it. So for example, in New Jersey, if you signed up to six different COVID sites to try and get your vaccination, chances are you had to sign up to six different MyCharts and you had to fill in all the same information in all six of those MyCharts. The other thing is your data is now trapped in all those MyCharts, your MRIs, your x-rays, everything, your blood tests, everything. It's all in different versions of the MyCharts. Now to me, that's the exact opposite way around to the way it should be. So if you like the subject, is the healthcare provider, the object is the customer. Why isn't the subject the customer and the object the service providers? Because if you're a customer, what do you care about? Well, I'd like to have all of my MRIs and all of my x-rays in one place. So when I sit down with my orthopedic surgeon, he only has to go to one place to get it. And by the way, I'd like it in one place as well. Or if you go to the emergency room, right? You want all your medical records together, or at least the latest ones, and they're not working off something that's four years old. That's exactly right. And so, and so I think we're going to see two things happen here. One of them is we're going to see aggregation integration platforms, much like the mints and the personal capitals in financial services, start to enable you to manage the data that is aggregated, uh, well, that is now separated, sorry, in separate platforms about you, but apply policy to that data consistently. So for example, if you don't want any of your personal photos to be owned by any social platform that you post them on, much better to post a link to the photos that are the someplace else than actually to post the photo because there's a legal difference between the ownership of that photo after you post it. So, so True. this whole notion of kind of where the line is, is super important. But to go back to the GDPR and, and you know, California privacy and New York privacy and so on, I think it's absolutely uh, certain that this country will end up with a privacy legislation framework, even if the individual states have slightly different implementations of it. I think that framework should be designed around customer first. And if you think about the role of customer protection agencies in the government, one of their key roles should be to protect 
the data, but also to empower the customers or the citizens, really, in this case, uh, to be able to manage their data effectively as well. And we can chat more about that in a bit. But now you've painted a picture for me where the economic incentives are opposing each other. You just said that the, there are companies out there that are making tremendous amounts of money and are incentivized to be able to take this data and own it themselves. Right. They own it. It's their property. And then they can they can benefit or sell it. But on the other hand, what you're saying where we need to go is for the individuals, for us to own our own data. Right. And the people that are using it only to, to kind of be a custodian of it when it's for our benefit. And yes, I mean, that makes a whole lot of sense. How do we flip that model and make the economic incentives in such a way that those companies are willing to not be the owner of that, our data. How do we do that? Well, I think if, you, if we took the simple example of financial services aggregation and we just look at what are they selling it for, right? So if you take an Intuit and, and Mint as an example, they're providing a very valuable service. I mean, they give you a, you know, a household level balance sheet that you can manage and it makes managing that a lot easier. But they're using mm -hmm. that for really two or three things. They're showing you competitive pricing on products you, you ordinarily buy anyway. You know, they're showing you um, offers that other people who have subscribed to things you subscribe to have found useful, right? So although to a certain extent they're taking the data that's custodied at the banks, aggregating it, and then, and then, and then selling it or offering access to it uh, for, for people to uh, provide offers to you, there's actually quite good value in that. If you look at social networks, on the other hand, a lot of the data that you post into social networks, and in particular, for example, location tracking data, which is kept in, in many of these social network platforms, particularly platforms used by children as well, uh -huh. you know, th that data, in my opinion, should not be owned by the social media platform. It could be custodied there if each individual was allowed to apply policy to the data. Right. But to my mind, it should not be owned. And, and so to, to answer your question about, first of all, uh, the kind of business incentives and second of all, the capabilities. Right. So if you and I are friends and we like going to the movies together and instead of posting on Facebook that we, you know, left the house in an Uber, that we got to the movie theater and we decided to go for a drink. So we registered with one of the uh, registration apps for location that we actually went to a certain bar. We took photos of our drinks and posted them on Facebook. Then we left the bar and we went to the movie theater and then we posted that we were going to this particular movie and we were at AMC. And then we thought, well, afterwards we might as well go for dinner. So we go for dinner. And, and if you actually look at that digital exhaust, there, there are literally thousands of data points and maybe even tens of thousands if you add location services in there as well. Yeah. Now imagine a world where you and I could create a, a, a group and it's the group of people that like going to see horror movies on Thursday nights. And we have a set of things that we do. We go for a drink, we go to the movies, we go for dinner, and then we need an Uber home, right? So, or, or let's say a car service home. Imagine that that group could be completely anonymized. And now the theater itself, the bar and the car services and the restaurant were bidding to get our business every week. Now, in that example, I'm still doing the exact same things I was doing before, but I'm in control with my group of the decision as to which restaurant we choose, whether we choose Uber or Lyft, which bar we go to and which movie theater we go to. 
But the need for anonymization in that example requires a different kind of platform than the platforms that currently exist, which are more about something's happening, I'm posting, and essentially just creating more digital data trail uh, for people to follow. So we've invested in a company called AtSign, which is going after that space in spades. They, they've created a network privacy protocol, much like an IETF task force would have back in the day. Oh, wow, that's a scar somewhere there. Um, but anyway, um, so, so it wasn't as bad as GSM. Let's just, let's, let's not go there. But joking apart, you know, you need to start off with the notion that everything that is about you is owned by you and the things you share um, are shared with people on a, on a policy basis that you decide. So for example, someone you've just met, the only thing you might want to share with them is your email address, right? Someone you know better, you might want to share your cell phone number. Someone you know really well, like someone in your family, you might want to give them your address. The idea that you give a contact card to somebody and it has all of that stuff on it um, isn't really the way the world is now. The world is really thinking yeah. about attribute level. Now, if we flip this now, and I talk about another example, there's another company we're working with uh, called One Creation. And One Creation's built on top of digital ledgers, which are pretty much guaranteed to be private because of the way that they're designed. And they have a number of use cases, including the MyChart one that I told you about earlier, that they're working on right now, uh, where they're making everything customer-centric. The customer gets to look at the data in their own eyes of their own volition that they own. And in the example of the human genome, you can literally take the three strands of the genome that you want to share with the BRCA test, drag and drop, right? So, so it's not required for you to share your entire human genome for most of the different kinds of tests, whether it's what kind of food to eat to make you lean, whatever it is, because it's different from person to person. So there's all these platforms emerging and they're like, oh, just give us your genome and we'll tell you this. Well, guess what? You don't need to give them your genome. Let's talk about the meaning of information security for one second, Matt, because this is a really important point. Information security is not a macro topic. It's a micro topic, right? So in the example I just gave, you, you know, you're picking out a little piece of your genome and choosing to share that. You're entitling, to use information security speak, somebody to have access to that data, hopefully with an end date on it, right? So, so well, that's the other thing that you're talking about here, right? And, and let's dive into it a little bit. When we move into the digital age, instead of handing your business card, which has your name and, you know, address or whatever, phone number and email, you have the ability to be selective in what data. In addition, there's an opportunity there to be able to revocate that data, pull that data back at some 100%. point. And, and that's something we've never had, right? In the analog world, that doesn't exist. Once you've given it out, it's gone. And even in the first few steps of our digital evolution, once the data's out there, it's out there. But now when we're talking that next generation, when we're talking about, you know, potentially blockchains or, or you know, uh, being able to put controls around data attributes, is that what we're what we're going to be able to do as individuals revocate data and pull data absolutely back? i mean in actual fact that technology already exists it's actually more a matter of people building out to that use case than than the technology needing to be created to do this so um you know another company i work with pretty closely and i'm on the board of is a company called digital asset 
and digital asset is building complex business workflows between uh, market participants who might be banks, for example, uh, regulators who need read-only access to certain parts of the, of the ledger record. So they might only see three of the fields out of 20 in, let's say, some kind of syndicated deal that's going on between the banks. So this kind of workflow now is already being created in the institutional space and in the proprietary space. And there are a number of companies now looking to do the exact same thing for individuals. And, and if you think about it, there's, there's quite a rich opportunity there. So even if you just think about your own data, I mean, if you just tell me how many different data places do you use? And just think about, you know, your iPhone, your iPad, your, your Windows box, you know, Dropbox box, all these things. I mean, if you think about it, how many do you think it is for your average person? It's got to be over 100. And they probably don't even know all of it. It's not even cognizant because even the office apps you're using are now connected to some backend cloud, right? So it's every app you're using, every device you're using, and then the chain of what they're using because they also have digital suppliers, yep. right? And who they're sharing it with. And I don't even know if there's a map out there to say how, how much that, that data stream flows. So I think you know, one of the things we're seeing emerge there is, is this notion of being able to control at least the policy on those platforms for companies. So, so companies that can allow you to set a policy for anything you say on, on Dropbox to two weeks, report on all exceptions um, you know, outside of the two weeks, which mm -hmm. could require an investigation, but may not. It might be a legitimate use case. Um, but, but starting to think about data information security the way a CISO does, but implemented in a simple enough way for just the consumer to use. That's the thinking, I think, that's needed here. That's interesting. That's interesting. So let me throw an idea you know, at you, because I think it's going to be important given how much data we're generating and who's going to have it and who's, where it's being sold or maliciously shared. Um, it's got to be important to know who has our data, right? Um, in the finance world, there's already a requirement that they give you some kind of notice or statement quarterly or something that we have your data, we have your records, so on and so forth. Absolutely. Do you think we're going to see that same thing from a regulatory space eventually down the road where there will be a rule that says, hey, if you've got Andy's personal information, you have to send him a notice once a quarter to say who you are, who you've shared it with and what data you have. And that then would give you the ability to revocate that or at least track where it came from, you know, where it's bleeding out. Do you think that's something down the path? I do. Uh, I think that, that all of these things require um, enough technology to make the management of that uh, simple. And so what you've just outlined, and if we talked about 100 endpoints with different kinds of data in them, the good news is the data is all kind of the same. It's photos, it's PDFs, it's Word documents, and so on. So I think I think the the technique that can be used to manage that can be consistent. Um, yes. But but the in order for that to happen, if you like, first of all, there has to be public debate. Then there needs mm -hmm. to be a policy framework that says that that actually we can create legislation that requires this within some time frame, and then yeah. people will need to react to that. Now, if you think about kind of you know, the CEO of Google, CEO of Facebook, 
you know, being in front of Congress on a reasonably regular basis, and very recently around around this whole topic of privacy and, and yes. customer information. And you think back to the 2016 election, Cambridge Analytica, the great hack, all of that stuff. I think I think that that there's sufficient evidence out there right now uh, that there does need to be the right public debate and the right policy framework put in place. Some states are way ahead of that, like California and New York in the U.S. and right. like like Europe with GDPR. Um, but I think honestly, the the frameworks that have been put out there right now are um, a first generation of data privacy requirements. Because you've got to imagine that if we think about the amount of data being created now being huge, imagine what it will be like in five years' time. Because if you think about five years yeah. ago versus now, so I think I think that kind of, if you like, is the basis for the requirements of a mechanism for policy management for personal data. And by the way, that's true for the enterprise. So if you think back to you know, a regulation like SEC 17A4, which required the banks to keep essentially all instant messages, all electronic communication actually, including email IM and now video right. as well uh, for seven years, um, you know, they did put criteria around it. They said you have to keep it for seven years. It can be subpoenaed. There can be a legal hold put on it. So yep. it has to be kept for longer. But this whole notion of policy around data has existed in um, the, the corporate world for quite a long time. So I think we're really taking things that exist already, at least in terms of frameworks, and then applying them at a much broader level. But obviously the scale of the number of people and the amount of data in the consumer space is crazy. So let's take it a little bit because you had mentioned things like the election and society and, and so forth. You know, with all this data about all of us being so available, there's there's obviously risks of abuse, um, risks of inequality, um, amplifying inequities, things of that sort. And, you know, how do you see as we move forward? Because you talked about a lot of controls there. You talked about being able to own your data and revocate it and limit it. How do you think those capabilities will either help or hurt equality and and equity in society moving forward hmm. that's a very broad topic but let's let's start off with kind of things that we know we can do so if you could control your data let's say you could so your videos and your photos were controlled and let's say they were watermarked as well and now people um, who were essentially creating frauds or fakes of your photos or videos um, are taking a watermarked document uh, and and trying to transform it. They're changing the face. They 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 are um, deliberately trying to create misinformation. Um, mm -hmm. So this whole notion of fakes, right? Now, yeah, deep fakes and everything else. Yeah. Absolutely. So so I mean, the way I think about all these things is the easiest way to start is with whitelisting. So, so essentially, if you've whitelisted everything and said, you know what, this is mine, I own it, it's watermarked, and you know, unless you're extraordinarily sophisticated, recreating the watermark is going to be really hard, right? Especially if you check some everything. I mean, it's 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 pretty hard to do. So, so I think that we're going to move into a world where known good on things like news stories, on things like videos, is actually the requirement, or it's a, it's a filter you can turn on. I only want to see known good stories. Right. And there's going to be a set of criteria for those stories, which which basically are that the originator of the story 
and the digital supply chain that delivered the story to me, maybe I'm reading it in Apple News or maybe I'm reading it in Google News or whatever, but that supply chain between the story originator and the, the place where I'm reading it is guaranteed with integrity, right? That's how you build a known good architecture. So I think, I think we're going to see that done on blockchain. So, so the, the beautiful thing about digital ledgers and blockchain is they're immutable. Right. What, what's in there is in there. You can you can add a pen records, but the original thing is there. So so to me, I think, you know, now we've got scale in many of these ledger technologies. We can start to think about media being part of the way that that scales. And and it's it's the ledger thinking. And, and maybe, you know, if you add quantum, which then changes the processing speed and so on of how you get things into ledgers, um, maybe you could do everything. Maybe you could put the whole thing in there. I, I, I think, you know, um, whenever anyone says you can't do something, there's someone else who says, I'm going to figure out how to do it, right? Yeah, hold so, my beer, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I do see, I, I do see this, this world of, of known good, of signed artifacts using digital identity being essentially guaranteed as authentic and everything else being potentially suspect. It doesn't mean it's, it is suspect. It just means it's potentially suspect. It just hasn't been verified, right? Exactly. A, a certain measure of trust is assigned or, or, or not assigned. Exactly. I, I saw a solution today, which is one of the most simple things I've seen in ages, and it's brilliant. And it's, it's a solution to stop phone spam um, for brands that actually want to connect to their customers. So at the time the phone call comes in, it actually verifies whether the phone call originated from uh, a, you know a, a call center or contact center owned by the brand, and if not, it just sends it to the bit bucket, and so you can, <laughs> no because people are using these known numbers as a mechanism oh, yeah. of getting people to pick up to try and fraud them and fish them and scam them and so on, but but this idea that you can actually fix that problem with literally a simple callback into the into the ACD that says you know did this number originate to this number. And it's like a 0 0.01 second yes or no. And if it's a no, then off you go to the bit bucket. So, so I think even with something as annoying and a, as pervasive as, as you know, phone spam, you can start to solve that problem. Now, if you tie digital identity into that as well, so I know the digital identity of the originator, I know the digital identity of the receiver, now you can do things even cleverer. I mean, you can be much more um, you can have everything encrypted. You, you can you can have that entire conversation also be recorded on blockchain, right? So I, I, I think that we're going and that's technology that's here now, right? They're in deployment. Like right. So 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 I, I, I do think that that we're going to see um, known good emerge as uh, a technique in in many industries for guaranteeing that, that, you know, what you see is what's real, not, not what somebody wanted you to see. So what are the financial incentives around that then, right? I mean, there is effort there and, and there, there's something worth value. Is the end consumer gonna be charged for that? Or do you see the, the financial burden actually downstream to the marketing companies or, or, or the companies that are servicing the customer? Where do you see that burden get absorbed? So I think right now, you asked the question earlier about monetization, and this is a super important question. So when you're using Gmail, and Gmail is free, basically, and pretty much infinite, you don't really think about the, the things you're giving away um, when you sign up to use Gmail. 
and, and that's true of Facebook and, and Google and other platforms, uh, you know, uh, uh, as well. And so I, I think what's what will change is the valuation of what you think is free will become understood not to be free. It actually is what causes all these spam calls. It's what um, is causing data sharing between, you know, credit card issuers and, and you know, massive merchant aggregators, basically. And so, you know, if you think about it, if you think about it that way, I, I think it's inevitable that you're going to end up in a situation where you have to pay um, in exchange for services that do not do the kind of things that those services do if you don't want that. Now, if you like, alongside that, so you've got a world now on the left-hand side of the chasm that is not is not targeting you with things that you don't ask for, you don't want, right. and and there's that's the white hugely private, hugely yes. private. And full you control, have to pay. Right. You have to pay for those services that are private. Right. In the same way, you pay for Netflix, and Netflix is a good service. It knows what you like. It offers you other things. You know, and, and you know. I won't say any more than that. Um, <laughs> it's also gathering your data, but okay, yes. Well, but maybe it's gathering it to help you. I mean, that, 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 sure, that's sure. the good, good thought there, right? On the, yes. on the right-hand side of the chasm, you've got people whose business models are centered around monetizing your data. And, and you know, the way that the contracts are written with those companies is that they own that data because when you mm -hmm. signed up, you signed away the rights to that data. Right. Now, that's the free, you know, piece of it. You don't pay, but you actually are the product. Yes, exactly. So, so, so when I said earlier, before you do anything on the uh, policy side, you have to have a public debate. Part of that public debate is about education, right? Mm -hmm. and, and creating comparable costs or comps that we call them in the industry of if you're monetized by one of these providers, this is how much you're giving away every month. And this is the hassle factor. You know, this, this is basically yeah. plan A, right-hand side of the chasm. Left-hand side of the chasm, you're paying for account aggregation and it's costing you two bucks a month. You're paying for contact management and it's costing you 10 cents a month. You're paying for these other things and your total bill is whatever, 50 bucks sure. a month, let's say. But the advantage of that is that you're in control of everything. And so, you know, I see the policy platforms created on the left-hand side of the chasm then starting to percolate into policy management on the right-hand side of the chasm. And here's how that works. Many of the functions that, that you would want to use to set policy on existing platforms exist, but they're buried inside the platform somewhere. And as those platforms become more regulated, by the way, those, those functions are going to become deeper, wider, and more consumer-centric, but they're going to be buried even further in the platform because the platform itself has a vested interest in the consumer not using those, those capabilities. So somebody that comes along and implements a policy framework that integrates with those platforms and you say, I want to own all of my photos. I mean, because that's how simple it would be. Do you want to own your mm -hmm. photos? Yes. Okay. Well, I'm going to make sure that all the photos you posted on these sites are deleted. Yeah, they still have a copy anyway, but whatever. And I'm going to make sure those photos are copied someplace where you own them. Right. So, so, so this whole notion of essentially integrating with the current business model, but allowing policy to be enforced across the current business model while a new business model emerges. I think it, well, that's the way I expect the market to to evolve from where we are today. I mean, that's that's a prediction. It's not it's not it's not something that's based on fact. <laughs> but there are there are certain companies that are already thinking about this and working on it. And the thing I find with privacy advoc advocates, um, 
like the the lady that runs fixfake.com for example i i mean that these people are passionate they really care about what they're doing and they really want to help educate people around the value of what they're giving away for free no that makes sense okay so you've got on one side of the hand we have to pay for our privacy on the other hand we get it free but we have no privacy we surrender it and you know it's it's not a binary decision right it's it's got to be a scale here and you mentioned some some likely capabilities that we're going to be able to start flipping certain switches to say okay i started with you know my my pictures being uh, on a free service but now i want to pay and 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 pull that back and it may be as simple as a checkbox in the tool that you're using and now you're being charged and and they take care of that for you do you also see business incentives um so for example uh wechat right was you know changed their privacy policy and some things that happened and a lot of there was some rebellion there and many users left wechat because of the privacy concerns and where did they go they went to things like signal um telegram which also have privacy uh, much better than WeChat, and yet it's still free. They, they, they've got premium versions, but do you think privacy will be a competitive advantage and that will also lure, or, or, or should I say, um, push the industry to explore more on that privacy side of the spectrum? Um, I think that in the model that I described where the new world is emerging with the privacy built in and the old world is having to adapt in kind of the way that you just said. So maybe the existing services that are about monetizing me um, are actually now adapted to, to not monetize me if I pay, right? Because there's an equivalence in terms of value here. So you, you, could, you could argue it's a trade for companies like that. The problem is if all of your real revenue comes from advertising or selling the data to others, then it's quite a big pivot or quite a big transformation for companies like that to go through. So let's kind of think about what companies have been through those kind of transformations in the past and how well have they done? So I would say if you went back 10 years and you looked at Microsoft and Adobe that sold on-prem products on Windows, so Office was a product that ran on top of Windows, I can't remember if there was a Mac version 10 years ago or not, but there probably was. <laughs> um, but one thing's for sure, there wasn't a cloud version. And all of Adobe's products were also deployed on local machines and there was no cloud version. Now, now um, both companies went through a significant change to move to cloud. Not only did they have to refactor their products completely, they had to change their entire financial system. So they moved from you know 605 to 606, they started to charge SaaS revenue, which is what right. the 606 model is. And these things are non-trivial. I mean, you have to have um, separate books. You've, you've got to run a very, very complex infrastructure while you're hybrid. But when you get to the other side and, and you've got everything on a subscription basis, you're in good shape. Really good shape, right? <laughs> look at their valuations. Huge. So right. if you look at the fastest growing businesses in the world and you think about businesses you would invest in, Nearly all of them are SaaS businesses, and SaaS is starting to pervade verticals that it was never in before, like health tech, like meditech, like insurance, and so on. So, so is it feasible that the consumer, the consumer platforms that exist today 
get sassified at the same time as new competitors emerge. So if we think about something simple like HR systems, you know, Oracle bought PeopleSoft, SAP had an HR system, there were a few smaller companies in that space, and then Workday emerged with a SaaS platform that literally just grew like a weed, right? And it forced the other companies to move their HR platforms to the cloud. Is yeah. it possible that the companies on the left-hand side of the chasm that are building fast, they're building based on a subscription model, the company I mentioned to you before, um, AtSign, now has a stack of developers building new functionality on the platform. Is it possible that that momentum starts to drive the right-hand side of the chasm to move towards a subscription model? I think it is. And it's happened before, so that's why I think it's it's feasible. So it could happen faster than you think, because if you have the public debate and the policy framework in place, which is going to be, you know, you need to comply with this by some time scale, right. reasonable time scale, um, which is likely to be three to five years, I would say, um, that then then it becomes completely feasible that what you said could happen. So so. I don't know what order that will happen in, but I think the start of the discussion is going to be the federal level discussion around privacy and what that ends up looking like in terms of legislation, because that will both legitimize the left-hand side of the chasm and force the right-hand yeah. side of the chasm to start thinking about business models that they maybe aren't in today, or it's on some white paper that they wrote three years ago, which said, well, if they implement <laughs> this federal privacy, then this is what we would do, you know? And so, so I, I think we're going to see significant movement during this administration. I think in the next four years, we're going to see that move significantly. So that's a big domino that that's going to fall or has to fall in order for us to kind of move forward, both with the simple discussion out in uh, in the public for uh, everyone to understand you know, what are the challenges and, and what are the risks? What are the opportunities? As well as start implementing some of the regulations that become a forcing function uh, to raise all boats. And then that pushes that whole data environment forward, hopefully to a much better place where people are empowered, right? Data is used for good and less for bad. And we're more aware of it. Um, and we're willing to accept our responsibility as part of that greater data ecosystem. I think, yeah, I agree. I, I think, I think if you think about it almost the way enterprises do, you're going to end up with profiles and role types. So you're going to end up with, you know, slightly conservative, conservative, um, you know, very liberal with, re with regard to data sharing and so on. So you'll, you'll end up with a set of types and those types will be roles that you can implement both on the left-hand side and the right-hand side at the same time, because in the end, you know, people are typed, right? They, people yes. are comfortable, they're shy, they're private, they're very open and extrovert. So there's different kinds of people. And I think you'll see, um, you know, framework emerge that allows you to, to group that, which will make the management of the policy and entitlements miles simpler. So I think when you're thinking about how to design something to do that, that's, that's the way you would think about it. What are the key role types or behavioral types uh, that we're looking for? So if you look at a company like, you know, Genes.ai, which is a couple of the folks from Cambridge Analytica, uh, mm -hmm. they've done a lot of work on this um, psychological testing to look at what kind of people like what kind of things. So you kind of need that type model, I think to come up with a very simple way of implementing this. Because it might be for some people, like my dad, I mean, he uses Facebook, um, you know, he's 85. I think I would like to help him pick 
one of those role um, types and profile types that would be suitable for his use that would stop him doing anything that, that would be dangerous for him, for example. Right. So I, I, I think I think that's that's kind of the way I see it. Well, I think it's going to be a very interesting world where we can, again, achieve benefits that we probably can't even imagine, right, from a society and an individual perspective. And I know we're out of time for today, but I want to bring you back. I want to talk about, you know, in order to get there, a lot of it centers around identifying individual people and making sure you know those policies are only being done for that person and that person has the rights uh, to do that. And I, I think there's gonna be a lot of tension and especially when we talk about privacy um, because that also can, well, that can under, be undermined when you start looking at positively identifying people and that becoming part of the data set out in the real world. So I'd like to bring you back. I'd like to pick your brain in regards to some of the challenges around identity, some of the best practices, and what some of the companies out there are doing to innovate, to take on some of these challenges so that we can positively identify people, but not sacrifice their privacy or the control of that private data. Are you interested? Are you up for it? That sounds like a great subject for a future podcast, honestly. All right, let's do it. We will get that. We will get that set up. So, you know, I just want to say thank you so much, Andy. It is always a great pleasure in understanding. You've got a great perspective in in a lot of the companies out there and a lot of the brilliant people that are innovating and are seeing challenges that most of us just don't comprehend we don't grasp and they not only see them they're innovating to develop solutions and capabilities and security and everything else so i want to thank you and and i look forward to our next conversation me too thank you very much